Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And today's podcast features a conversation that I had last Monday night in the live salon with Dr. Thomas Roberts. Tom is a professor emeritus at Northern Illinois University, and uh, he not only began teaching the world's first university catalog-listed psychedelics course in 1981, he is also a founding member of MAPS, a former visiting scientist at Johns Hopkins, and he's the author of uh, quite a few books, but in this interview, uh, we're mainly going to talk about his latest book, Mind Apps, Multi-State Theory and Tools for Mind Design. <laughs> Pretty interesting book, by the way. And while Tom is also the author of dozens of other books and academic papers that deal uh, largely with psychedelics and what we often call consciousness, uh, whatever that may mean, but in any event, you most likely know Tom as the man who created the first Bicycle Day celebration. So uh, let me play the recording of our conversation now. And I've got good. I've just gone to full screen. All right. Okay. Yeah. You can see Fascinating. Stanley is here from uh, Washington State and Niles from the Bay Area. And then Gene's coming in from Nova Scotia. So uh, that's uh, these are all the early birds. But Thomas, <laughs> it be great to get to finally meet you. Uh, you know, I, I don't I'm absolutely certain. But this is like three computers ago. So I've lost all the records. But I think you and I conversed or by email way back when uh, uh, gee, back in 2002, three, four, five, somewhere around there. Yeah, um, when I saw your name, I, it sort of rang a bell, but I wasn't sure, you know, whether I was real there or not. Yeah, that was some time ago, right? Yeah, the, the reason the reason I I'm absolutely sure about it is, uh, and I can't remember how you first came uh, to to my to my awareness is is that when I saw that you're a professor at Northern Illinois. But, you know, I graduated from Rochelle Township High School, and oh my God. Uh, quite a few <laughs> of my classmates went to NIU. Oh, sure. And, uh, of course, when, when I was in high school, we were up there for science fairs. And so NIU is sort of a branch of, of my high school experience. And <laughs> when I saw there's a professor there, and he's teaching a course in psychedelics. Of all you know, things. Just blew me away, and, and we'll talk about. I don't want to get into that right now, but I want you to know that that it's NIU that stuck out with me so much uh, when I when I first saw your your connection there. <laughs> there's there's a lot wow. of people that are interested in this, and and now we're doing a a series of podcasts. Uh, I don't know if you know who Leonard Picard is. Uh, he he's the that's the uh, guy who's uh, isn't he in jail still? Yes, he's he's the one who got two consecutive life sentences for essentially uh, threatening to make LSD. He never had manufactured any. It was just the, the possession of stuff. And Leonard, uh, in 2014, published a novel that he wrote, or he, maybe that's when he started writing it. He, he's in, uh, in maximum security prison in Tucson, and he wrote this novel with literally a pencil and paper, no access to the Internet, no access to a library. And it's being taught now in places like Oxford and Cambridge and in Europe. It's, it's an unbelievably beautiful piece of literary work. Plus, it's a, a psychedelic work that's uh, par excellence. Well, so what's the name of it? It's called The Rose of Paracelsus. And uh, in my podcast 609, I did a three-and-a-half-hour podcast with people reading excerpts from it. Uh, including people like Dave, uh, Brother David Stendel-Rost and people like that, uh, and, and Ben uh, Sassa, who I see you, you uh, yeah. mentioned in your book. Ben is one of the readers, and uh, recently we did a, a podcast with a number of people who are uh, trying to help Leonard get out, but he served almost 20 years in, oh. in a horrible, horrible conditions. And so the first chapter will be coming out next month, uh, that Leonard is reading himself, and it's been kind of a struggle, you know, getting it uh, out of the prison because I can imagine you interrupt on your phone call every five or ten minutes saying you're talking to a federal penitentiary, and then they cut you off. And uh, but anyhow, Cat uh, Lakey has done a magnificent job of putting all this together, and she's uh, over the next two years we're going to podcast the whole book. It's it's like over six hundred pages, and, and it's, it's the rose, the like rose the of, Par of Paracelsus. Yeah. And uh, it is a story uh, 
about the six major LSD chemists in the world, a uh, secret society thing. And uh, when I was talking about to Leonard about it, uh, you know, about a year ago, I guess, he said he laughed in that everybody thought it was a novel. <laughs> and when you read it, you'll see that it's uh, much more than that. So uh, anyhow, that's that's been the big project we have uh, going on right now. And so we're picking up a lot of new listeners uh, that yeah. aren't necessarily into the scene. So anyhow, uh, it's it's uh, 6.30ish now, and I see some of our old uh, regulars are here. And uh, so I thought we'd kind of get into it, but uh, eventually I want to get to your new book, which is really exciting, and it's one of <laughs> a dozen psychedelic books you've written. But but I want to start out way back in the beginning, in, in your beginning, which was also Myron Stolaroff's beginning, and that was Willis Harmon. Yeah, yeah. Tell, tell was, us about how you're, you got connected with Willis Harmon. Well, I was writing my dissertation at Stanford on Abraham Maslow's needs hierarchy. And um, somebody told me that Harmon had been doing some work along those lines. So I wanted to find out what he knew. I enrolled in a class that he had called the Human Potential. And it was called a graduate special. It was available only to graduate students and from anywhere across the university, and it met just once a week. And um, this was probably in 1968 or 69, and it was talking about all kinds of things that were very, quote, fringy at the time, like biofeedback and meditation and yoga and hypnosis. And um, during the class, we I guess there must have been about 25 of us we met once a week around a table. Um, I... Married couple who were taking the class started to describe their first psychedelic experience, and this is the first time I ever heard anyone describe a psychedelic experience. Now, how, how, how old were you then, Tom? Um, um, let's see. I would have been thirty. Thirty in sixty-eight. Yeah. Okay. I I think one of the things I've been lucky about is I didn't have my first psychedelic experience until I was uh, 32. I don't know how I could have handled it if I was 16, you know, just <laughs> somehow or other, you know. For, for what it's worth, Tom, I was 42. So I understand oh, and I agree okay. totally with you. I, I, I wouldn't be here right now if I'd done this in my 20s. because I could Yeah, right. I just can't imagine what I'd be like. So anyway, they, they described it and... Um, and um, they didn't fit the, my model of the, the scrawly, awful-looking, you know, drugs fiend, you know, you know, with the bad eyes and looking to half crazed. And these were and these were two graduate students in, in an advanced course at Stanford. And about half or maybe three quarters of the rest of the class started to get in on the conversation and talk about psychedelics. And it was clear they knew what they were talking about, and then talk about their own experiences. So this just really jolted my view of what psychedelics were. So that was my first sort of opening to the field. And um, I realized that you could be an advanced graduate student at Stanford and still have done psychedelics. And, and you know, it was Willis Harmon who, who turned Myron Stoloroff onto psychedelics. Myron was, uh, he got his, his master's at Stanford in electrical engineering. And then he was the uh, engineer at Ampax that actually got the, the uh, patent on the feedback mechanism for the first digital tape system. So we, we <laughs> owe Myron all that, too. But oh, wow. then then Willis Harmon, while Myron's doing all this stuff, Harmon tells him about LSD and connects him up with Al Hubbard. And uh, then, you know, Myron was gone from Ampex for the rest of his life. So uh, Willis Harmon started a lot of balls rolling, didn't he? Yeah, he started Jim, uh, Jim Fadman going, too. Right, right. And, and, of course, Jim then went to work for uh, Myron. Uh, yeah. at the, uh, the institute in, 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 uh, Menlo Park. Yeah, Menlo Park Institute. Yeah. And, and, you know, I asked Myron one time, I said, uh, well, when you were interviewing people to hire there, uh, what were, were Fadiman's qualifications? And he said, well, mainly he just graduated and he was the cheapest guy I could get. <laughs> yeah. <right. laughs> so, so, uh, from, from your exposure to, to, uh, through, through Willis Harmon, did, did you actually try psychedelics back then? Uh, no, not until um, February 1970, so that would have been two or maybe three years later. Um, and uh, although I was sort of curious about them, I didn't uh, really think about trying them. You know, of course, I was near San Francisco. This is the late 70s, so there's a lot of sort of news around. And 
some discussion a lot around Stanford, but I was sort of busy working on my dissertation, so I didn't have much time to, to do it. Although actually, I, I did take my first psychedelic before I finished my dissertation. And, um, so little by little, I sort of got, you know, interested in it. I'm not someone whose life goes along and suddenly makes a great change of direction. Things just slowly accumulate with me. So over time, I accumulated some. In one of my classes, there was a, a dentist from San Francisco who had done psychedelics and uh, got interested in education. My major was uh, educational administration and educational psychology. And he was interested in how people learn things. So he talked about his experiences. So little by little, I sort of got used to the idea. And then the opportunity came along in February 1970. Now, that was that was before you went to that conference in Iceland then, right? Yeah, Iceland was um, in the summer of 1972. Um, and that was, uh, I was invited there. Basically, I wanted to go along with my girlfriend. Um, I'd gone where she went. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, is that, 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 I know that story. Decision, you know, I think every man listening knows that expression. Yeah, knows what it feels like. Um, yeah. So anyway, um, I went, and um, that's where I ran across uh, Stan Groff and uh, Will, uh, uh, Walter Clark and Joseph Campbell and a lot of the other people. And, was and Houston Smith was there as well. Yes. Right. So hey. here were all these. I didn't know who the people were, you know, so, and I'd find out he's, he's the world's expert in this and he's written the main work and the other thing. And so I was really impressed with that. Let and me, I realized you could get let, into let it. Me just, let me just put an exclamation point here because uh, most of the people here, you know, going to conferences here, there and everywhere. And, and uh, they're, they're going to conferences right now where people are, are not really well known, but can you imagine going to a conference in 1972 <laughs> With Stan Groff, Houston Smith, Joseph Campbell, and Walter Clark. I mean, this, this right. is the bedrock of the psychedelic renaissance. So, yeah, absolutely, yes. And I, I've been lucky, sort of, throughout my life, making those those chance contacts. And and then, so that that was some. Bill Richards was there too. You know, oh, the guy who's now yeah um, at Hopkins, and and. I'm sure there are other people there, there whose names I would, would recognize or should have recognized and didn't. And so then two years later, there was another one in Iceland in 1975. And um, that worked into one that was held in northern Finland in 1976. So there are all these like, these are little, little small invitational conferences. Yeah, let, so me, just, let me ask you about that. Now, this is in the the early to mid-70s, and these are international psychedelic conferences, uh, right. invitation only. How do you how do you wrangle an invite to something like that? I don't know. You go to one, and then they invite you to the rest of them, I guess, is the way it goes. And also, I mean, there wasn't that much interest in that time. You know, I mean, there were more people trying to pile. There would have been a lot of people sort of who done acid and wanted to come and talk about their experiences but not relatively fewer who were thinking a lot about acid. And also, um, you know, the, the psychotherapy hadn't been done at that time except by Groff. Um, and so there were none of this um, things that we know about going on now. So anyway, that's, that's the way those worked out. And um, sort of one thing led to another, and I'd run into somebody, and, you know, it was a, a small enough group so that the same people would here with, you know, a few new people coming in, a few old people dropping out. But let, let me, uh, let's, let's uh, fast forward. You go to Stanford, you start going to these conferences. How, in, you're, you're, you become a, a, a professor at Northern Illinois, and in 1981, you introduce a course on psychedelics. Now, how yeah. on earth did, now that's back when acid was being made illegal, and it's all the horror right. stories. How did you pull that off? Uh, well, I already had tenure. So if I didn't have tenure, I probably wouldn't have dared to do that. Um, and, uh, um, well, I had been teaching a graduate educational psychology course, and we had a section on transpersonal psychology. So that worked into the sort of the psychedelic angle. And then um, I'm not sure how I actually got the idea. I, I submitted a proposal um Oh, it was just these one, one-off one special topics courses, you know, studies in this, that meet just once, and then that's it. And so I, pro- I proposed the course, to, you know, for that, on that special topics, readings and workshop in kind of course. 
So uh, I put up um, notices around campus um, because, um, you know, to recruit students. And um, I figured I'd get enough students. At that time, it was open to anybody in, above graduates or undergraduates. Um, and I later, I later changed it to just some um, students in the honors program. But at that time, my assistant department chair got a call from the provost who uh, wondered whether this was an appropriate topic for a university course. <laughs> I, and, um, I, I got on my high, high horse and felt very self-righteous about it. And um, I wrote the provost a letter. And right at that time, the paperback edition of Psychedelic Drugs Reconsidered came out by Grinspoon and Bacalar. Grinspoon was a psychiatrist at Harvard Medical School and Bacalar, a, 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 a lawyer at Harvard Medical School. So it was written from a medical and lawyer's point of view. And it had a 40-page annotated bibliography. If anybody has a chance to buy the book, buy the paperback edition because it has the bibliography. So I photocopied that. I sent it to the provost. And I um, <laughs> very self-righteously sort of sent him a, a letter um, um, challenging him and saying that um, it was my uh, it was my judgment that the content of courses were all were determined by the department members, not the provost's office, and his job did not include censoring ideas. And if you had any, uh, if you want to discuss this with me, I'd like to discuss it with him in an open meeting of the college council, which is all or the university council, which has delegates from every department, and every department delegate would agree that their department has the right to determine what goes into their content, the content of their courses. And uh, two days later, my assistant department chair got a telephone call from the provost and said, he was just checking because somebody wondered. (laughs) You know, um, if if anybody ever wonders about the value and power of tenure. (laughs) That's right, that's right. Yeah, it's 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 a shame we can't get that in other fields as well. Uh, you, you know, I I uh, I've, I've got a, a couple other questions I want to ask you before we get into talking about your book, and I want to open it up to uh, the rest of the people here. But first, I, I've got a uh, uh, first. I want to ask you because in your book you talk about this, and I'd, I'd like you to kind of tell us a little bit more about it. Uh, coming out of the psychedelic closet, uh, how oh. did, what was that like for you? <laughs> um, well, um, I was. Um in the spring of 60, 60, 78, I was in a month-long seminar at Esalen with Stan Groff, and one of the other people was, was James Bacalar, that guy from Harvard. And um, they were writing a book called Psychedelic Drugs Reconsidered, and they asked me to write a chapter for it. And that's the chapter where I first wrote that I had a psychedelic experience. I think probably everybody figured it out, but nobody really, I never said anything, you know. Um, and so um, the book came out, and I was worried about it. I thought, you know, what will my colleagues think? What will people quote across campus think? Um, you know, am I going to get tell- nasty telephone calls? Um, what about parents who are afraid their kids are going to this uh, wild place? And the book came out. No response at all. Absolutely none. <laughs> um, and I don't know whether nobody read it or they just figured out, you know, they knew me anyway. So at any rate, so I was all the night before, you know, I was sort of thinking of, I was awake at night thinking I can use this with this argument and I can explain this this way. And um, so then it came out. And, and so that basically was it. Now, uh, now, you know, you've been teaching this course or, or it's your professor emeritus now, but this course lasted for so long. Did you, yeah get any pushback over the years, like you just mentioned, parents or anything like that? Um, surprisingly little. I'm not sure exactly why, although, I mean, I approached it very much from a scholarly um, point of view, not, not not this is the way you do acid kind of a view. And um, when I moved particularly to the honors program, I had advanced, advanced juniors and seniors who were really, you know, very good students. Although I had one whose father um, was a retired uh, either FBI or CIA guy. I think it must have been FBI. And part of his job was to infiltrate the youth movements of the 1960s. And so I invited her to ask him to come and talk to the class. Um, and he brought along a bunch of posters for people who's, you know, who you know, were the sort of wanted um, 
drug druggies of the 1960s, late 60s, 1960s. So it was fascinating. And I figured out uh, that's a tactic to take. That if somebody, and they're, you know, well-meaning people who are very concerned about psychedelics, you know, they're not all sort of boot jack guys, but, but the thing is to, you know, I think is to let them come to the class and actually um, talk to the class. Although he's the only one, and he was actually, you know, talking about the work he had done and, and wasn't really sort of anti, you know, anti-class. And when I started my class, I would start off by asking the students, what reaction did they get from their parents and their friends when, uh, when they told them they were taking a class of psychedelics? And that was always a good, you know, icebreaker. Right. And, um, so a lot of them would say, well, uh, that won't look good on your record. Or what are you wasting your time for? And then I had one student, I wish I had met her parents, and her students said, that's about time. <laughs> <laughs> Today, that's what I would, I would say. But back then, I was... Well, one other thing uh, I, I want to... Uh, uh, or two other things. First of all, uh, I want to uh, tell you, uh, along with you, I, I'm also one of these people that wakes up uh, between 2 and 4 in the morning, and that's where I get uh, a lot of my good ideas. How long have you been doing that? You mean waking up at night with ideas? Yeah. Well, I've been aware of it probably um, for eight or ten years, but I've probably been doing it for a long time. I mean, I really have no no idea. And, of course, I think I, I, you probably found the same thing I do. You have to write it down because you won't remember it in the morning no matter how good the idea is. Well, you know, I, I did that for a while. And uh, now I make a pra- – and I've, I started doing this sometime in my late 60s. So I've been doing it for, you know, eight or nine years. And I, or I, I noticed it, like you said. I, I might have been doing it before. And at first I would, uh, you know, I'd make some notes or something. But now uh, for the last maybe five years, I, I make a point of not turning on the lights or anything. Uh, and, and thanks to uh, new technology, it's really easy to have a couple of tokes of cannabis, you know, uh, without fumbling around for lighters and things. Mm-hmm. And so I'll, I'll come up with, I, I have a lot of ideas, but I don't write them down until the next morning I get up and I help the grandkids get ready for school and then I exercise. And then anything that has still stuck from then is oh, what man. I write down. And, and uh, actually it, I've gotten some really great things out of that. It, it's a good time to, to do things, but I never did that or noticed doing that until I got older and didn't have the uh, cares of the next day. And so it didn't really matter if I was awake because I could take a nap the next day, you know? Yeah. That's an advantage of being older. Yeah. In the, the copy of your book I got, one of the first things I wanted to read was Appendix C, but in my early copy, it didn't have Appendix C about the origins of Bicycle Day. So oh. Everybody here knows about Bicycle Day. We've all celebrated it. We talk about it. I've, I've got a picture I took at Burning Man of a sculpture of uh, Albert on a bicycle and everything. Oh, uh, wow. Great. But we owe it to you, I understand, for Bicycle Day celebration. Tell us about that. Yeah. Um, I started it in my backyard. Um, I'm not sure whether it was 1983, 84, or 85, um, well, sometime early there. I just thought that we needed a holiday just like, you know, there are all these other holidays. And um, the, I sort of thought about the idea. Uh, the, that's one of those ideas that sort of popped into my mind. I knew immediately I liked the idea. Now, since then, I've sort of rationalized it. I said, you know, the Irish have St. Patrick's Day, and generally speaking, Columbus Day was an Italian day and so forth. And I thought, well, psychedelics, we need a day. But that's really rationalizing it after the idea popped into my mind. And originally, uh, we were going to have it on the 16th of April. You know, that's the day that Albert Hoffman first accidentally took LSD. By the way, there's a really great graphic novel out on Bicycle Day. I recommend it very strongly. It's a beautiful book. I, I think I think we talked about that here in the salon. I think I have a link to it. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah it's a great book. Right. So anyway, the the 16th was in the middle of the week and not a good time to have a you know a celebration. So we had it. I had it on the day that Albert Hoffman took his first intentional on the on the 19th um, and rode the bike home on that. That actually is one of the other famous the two bike rides. The 16th and there's the 19th. The 19th was the big strong one. So that's why I got to be April 19th. And um, 
we get together. It was really more of a family affair. I mean, it's not a, a psychedelic concerty sort of thing at all. We get together. We had some people would bring their children. And if it was good weather, we'd meet in the backyard. If it was bad weather, we'd meet in the house and just sort of hang out together and um, have a good time. And and that was about it. Um, and then so I decided um, it was a good idea, and I wanted people, other people to know about it. So I started sending out letters to people. I don't know when I got online with it. It, could, it couldn't have been in as early as the 80s, I don't think. And, and sort of, and it got picked up, I think, the Mass Bulletin might have had something on it. Um, and anyway, people picked up on it. And that's really my big contribution is, uh, is the Bicycle Day. But, um, and actually, a lot of people don't know how it started or where it started, but it started right here in the nice, flat, agricultural Midwest, not in San Francisco or Madison or somewhere. But, you know, first of all, I'm, you know, being a Midwesterner myself, I'm really proud to hear that. But uh, it's interesting how the thing has spread, the means yes. spread. Uh, and and uh, this is the first time I've heard that the, uh, we can figure out what year it was because it would be the year that uh, the 19th of April fell on a Saturday because you uh, wanted to do it on the weekend. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure it might have been, we might have fudged it by the, 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 I mean, the 19th could have been on Monday and we met on the weekend or could have been Sunday. I mean, I'm not sure, you know. That was not a big thing we thought about at the time. Well, you didn't think it was going to be an ongoing event. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's mentioned all kinds of articles and books. Um, I'm really pleased with that. But Albert know, Hoffman was not too happy about it. <laughs> well, you I, know. I, I wrote to him, and he was a little annoyed that I had chosen the bicycle to, to focus on and not the LSD molecule. I mean, obviously, that's what he'd be interested in. And... um and so, I, you know, I, we wrote back and forth for a while, and I explained to him that um, the, the reason I chose a bicycle was that it was you know, a good visual content. I asked him if he still had the bicycle, and if he did, I'd buy it from him, but he had sold it. Oh, that's And um, yeah. I told him then that this sort of the, the 19th of April, when he'd had the ride, would be similar to the 18th of April when Paul Revere had his ride, you know. And that, so these are both um, life-changing, uh, culture-changing events. And when it would be the 19th of April in Basel, it would still be the 18th of April in Boston because of the time change. But, you I, know, I, this, is, this is the first time I have learned when Paul Revere's ride took place. Oh, that famous poem was 18th of April in 75, that hardly a man is now alive, that remembers that famous year, day and year and famous ride of Paul Revere. Etc. <laughs> and 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 you know, from a marketing standpoint, LSD Day doesn't have nearly the uh, the the buzz that Bicycle Day does because anybody no. can talk about Bicycle Day and mixed company and not uh, and they'll get a wink and a nod from people who know, but uh, if they don't know, you know, it's just Bicycle Day. We're riding bikes. That's right. It sounds like a nice, healthy way to spend a Saturday afternoon. That that was a, a a lucky stroke of genius there. So so uh, before we start talking about your book, let me see if anybody else has some questions about things we've already talked about here. And there's an electronic way to raise your hand, and I can unmute you, or you can wave your arms if you're on video. So how long ago did you start Bicycle Day? I think it was 1983 or 80, no, 83, 84, something like that. I was born in 84, February. A bicycle year, baby. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. <laughs> well, well, I'm I'm officially going to say it's 1984, April 19th, 1984. Now, so since it was your birthday, Stanley, uh, if since we don't know anything differently for sure, you came in a few days before Bicycle Day. But <laughs> <laughs> okay. well, let me uh, let me do this. I'm going to uh, share the screen here for people to see, and this. I don't know if this is a, a PDF copy I have of your book, uh, Mind Apps, uh, yes. Multi-State Theory and Tools for Mind Design. And uh, the metaphor of an app for your mind is, uh, uh, to, to uh, make a pun, it's a very apt metaphor, I think. <laughs> that was one of those early morning ideas. Was it? Was it? Yeah. So so uh, where where do you want to begin talking about... Uh, now, do you want to you want to lead up to this book with some of the others that you've uh, prefaced this with, or you want to jump right into a mind app uh, wrap? 
Well, let's get into my depth because that sort of describes what I'm working in. Okay. I'm, I'm trying to get psych- people to recognize that psychedelics can be used intellectually, not just in religion or just in psychotherapy. So I'm trying to broaden the field um, and trying to get people who are interested in, you know, things like history and literature and, and philosophy interested in psychedelics. So the purpose of the book is to try to interest people in the humanities in psychedelics. And I use that mind app as, as a nice metaphor, um, which doesn't particularly have to do with the humanities, but I, but it tries to, yeah, try to get across the idea that, you know, we can install things in our brain mind complex just as we can install programs in our devices and we can do more things with them and new, new things with them. And that's, that's the metaphor that the book is uh, built around. And from there on, I mean, once you get that idea, there are a lot of new ideas in the book, but once you get that idea, everything else falls into place. That's the, that's, that's the key idea. Now, and, and, and you're talking about mind apps as uh, not, not just psychedelics, but things like yoga, other ways to uh, enter into uh, other than default consciousness. Is that correct? Yes, that's an important point. I'm trying to get people who think about psychedelics to broaden their horizon to think of psychedelics as one family among lots of other mind apps. So that psychedelics are the one that we're interested in, but others are interested in yoga and the martial arts and hypnosis and, um, and breathing techniques and um, brain stimulation and all those other things. And so I'm saying that psychedelics are the mind app that most of us are interested in, but that's just one family and this whole big family of ways of looking at the mind. So all these areas that have been very sort of called fringy to psychology, um, I'm trying to bring them into the center of psychology and to say, to look at the human mind in its fullest sense, we have to look at in every mind-body state and all the mind apps we're producing those states. So it's a bigger view of the human mind. It's, of course, it's very much like what Charlie Tart pointed out in altered states of consciousness. It's, a, it's that idea developed a little bit more. And, and uh, I, I should, uh, I guess, point out that the obvious, uh, everybody here knows that, even within the realm of psychedelics and yoga and Buddhism, there are a lot of apps, different apps within those uh, areas. Yes. You know, we talk about the different uh, ways, uh, different some of the psychedelics affect our consciousness in different ways. And uh, in fact, just uh, today I put out a, a, a talk that was uh, a man that was here in the salon a couple of weeks ago, the uh, difference between Yahe and ayahuasca. And, you know, some people just say they're both uh, very similar. They're, you know, vines from the, uh, the Amazon, but they're very different experiences, different culture, uh, backgrounds and all. And the same within, uh, yoga and various other spiritual disciplines that I think that, uh, what we're, you're talking about is, uh, you know, the huge, area that's uh, sort of, uh, you know, consciousness. Nobody can really uh, put a, uh, a handle on it, you know. And and uh, I, I just read an article last week uh, about uh, another consciousness article. And we've all heard the story about the uh, indigenous people talking about the world on the back of a turtle. And somebody said, well, uh, wh- what's under the turtle? And it's turtles all the way down. And right. this guy said, well, it's consciousness all the way down now. So, uh if if that's true, then a mind app uh, should certainly be something we should not only look at using, but at creating ourselves, building the apps. Not only that, we can put these together in new combinations that have never been tried before and develop mind-body states that have never been developed before. Just as we can put together chemicals and result in new molecules, we can put together mind apps and develop new mind-body states. That's That's the big adventure that we're looking at. Um, I don't use the word consciousness because it's so ambiguous. Um, when I use, I use the word mind-body state, and I, what I mean is consciousness in the sense that Charlie Tart does of uh, mind and body operating together as one particular whole, and the common ones are awake, awake sleeping, and dreaming. Um, so, but, so I use, when I use mind-body state, I mean consciousness in that Charlie Tart sense, but consciousness has a lot of other meanings. And the problem is people get together and they start discussing, discussing consciousness and they're using different meanings of the word consciousness. And so the, the discussion gets very confusing 
For example, uh, the simple one is an anesthesiologist. Conscious means awake and interacting with the world. But that would apply to dogs and cats just as well as to humans. So, but we generally don't think of dogs and cats having consciousness, at least in the human sense. So, so consciousness, I think, is still a good word, but people who use it have to be clear about what they're talking about. Yeah, so I, I totally agree. In, in my book, The Spirit of the Internet, which is subtitled Speculations on the Evolution of, on the, uh, Evolution of Global Consciousness, uh, I started out in the very beginning saying exactly what you just said. You know, it's, it's a word that doesn't really have a specific meaning. And so I said, so for this book, Here's a really narrow focused meaning I'm going to use for this book, but you can put another word in there if you want, you know, so, uh, yeah. and that's the trouble we have with a lot of words, I think. And last night, you know, I, I, uh, a few years ago, I started doing crossword puzzles because I'm told it's good for old brains. And, uh, so I see how, how simple words are used so differently. And last night when I woke up in the middle of the night, I, I, I'd been reading your book and I was sitting there or laying there in bed and thinking, Mind, body, mind, body. And then I changed it around. I started saying body, mind, body, mind. And I had a whole new different uh, series of uh, thoughts come through. And, mm. you know, that goes back to the thing about the gut feeling and all and the neurons in other parts of our body. So I think this is really important uh, work that you're doing to get the, the message that there's <laughs> our mind isn't just one little place somewhere, you know, in our head. Yeah. Yeah, and there, there are an infinite number of minds that we can construct using the various mind-body techniques. Yeah. And one of the things that, that uh, you know, I'm, I'm also an old, uh, besides being a lawyer, I'm a computer programmer, too. <laughs> I quit practicing law because I didn't think it was very honest. So uh, writing code is pretty honest. It's hard to cheat. And, and you know, when you're writing code, uh, we have the concept of a sandbox where you put your code in the sandbox that it can't interact with anything else on your machine. And until it's all debugged and pretty well working, you don't let it get out. And so when I hear the word app, uh, I think of all the apps on a phone and being a programmer, I know how they can crash and do problems and all. And so as, as I'm reading your book, I'm thinking of, of these mind apps uh, being really well tested uh, before you start uh, interconnecting them and in a sandbox kind of thing. And since my oldest son was really into Legos and still loves Legos, I'm thinking about putting these apps in Legos. And once they're debugged, then you can stack them together to build this new person or whatever you want to call it. So, uh, uh, you know, it's just metaphors that we're working with and we all need or use different ones. But uh, if, if you're an old programmer like me and you're worried about uh, bugs in the code, uh, think Lego blocks after it's taken out of the sandbox. <laughs> yeah, that's a nice image. That's a good image, right? And also, um, I'm sure there, there are, I think most of the mind body states that we created probably won't be good for much, but a few of them that will be good will be good for a lot. It's just like most molecules are just kind of molecules, but the ones that are useful are really useful. I expect to find the same kind of thing um, in mind body states. Well, you, you know, and also we have to have to consider that you know these are just not things people should jump into. You know, they should approach it very carefully. Unfortunately, we don't have a a university or a research institute that can just start systematically looking at these and trying to figure out what's the proper protocol for using these various mind-body apps. Well, I, I want to uh, tell you about, about something that hasn't made uh, made the, the mainstream media yet, but uh, one of our guests here tonight, uh, Kevin, uh, who's who's actually in a, in a car driving around central Ohio right now. He's like he usually is. He's not on video. Yep, there he is. He's coming from, from his, uh, his drive home. And Kevin is working with a group that is uh, – Definitely something that, that would uh, interact with a, a mind-body state. They are looking at extending the DMT experience uh, based on Rick Stross, Dr. Strassman's work uh, into a, a multi-hour experience that you could go out of and come back into at the same place. And they're doing, uh, they haven't done any of this yet because they're doing training, uh, uh, several years of training. Uh, and to make sure that something like this can can be done safely. And uh, I don't know, Kevin, do you want to give some of the headlines from this, or are you able to right now? Um, 
Yeah. Uh, yeah, where do I start? Yeah. Uh, two years in the training, uh, we stepped into ketamine this year, which uh, actually I just got back from Colorado uh, a couple days ago. Um, so Daniel McQueen with Medicinal Mindfulness, who is the uh, kind of started the DMTX project, um, they opened up, uh, they're stepping out into the public with the psychedelic um, work that they're doing. Um, so they're starting um, with uh, the ketamine infusions and injections. And that's the same technology that we'll step into with the DMT. So with the, uh, the target infusion pump technology and the pharmacokinetic model that Strassman and Andrew Gallimore have come up with. Um, so that's kind of where we're at. Um, we're headed to Costa Rica in June so we can uh, legally work with, uh, you know, some ayahuasca and some other DMT analog type things. And then 2021 is looking where we'll uh, probably get started. Um, that's kind of our timeline right now. But those are kind of the headlines. But there's a lot going on. We meet monthly online, kind of like we're doing now. Uh, we've got a whole team of uh, doctors and therapists and integration specialists. Um, it's growing like crazy. So, yeah. So kind of the headlines. <laughs> <laughs> so are, are you suggesting using the several drugs uh, in a series or how are, you, how are you approaching it? No, so, so the idea is this, is that We'll be able to overcome our body's natural uh, breakdown of dimethyltryptamine by uh. continuous fusion of DMT. Um, so Andrew Gallimore is a neuropharmacologist. Uh, um, he works out of Okinawa, Japan. And uh, using Rick Strassman's original research when he did the dose response. So he injected people four times every half hour. Um, and he used that blood data to come up with what's called a pharmacokinetic model. It's what anesthesiologists use to be able to keep you under, but not too under or not awake up. Um, so DMT fits within that model because it's short acting. It doesn't build up in our system, et cetera, et cetera. So basically the idea is that you'll get um, a bolus injection like Strassman did of a breakthrough amount of DMT. And then the pharmacokinetic model, let's say for someone like me, about a 70 kilogram person, is about four milligrams of DMT a minute to keep you in that breakthrough experience without an MAOI for essentially as long uh, as you want. But the idea with this machine, with the target controlled infusion pump that they use with ketamine and anesthesiologists use it, is that we could, you can basically increase or decrease the dose so you can bring somebody back out maybe talk for a little while and bring them back in you know and, and kind of figure out individual dosing for people um so that's what we're going to be studying and working with so so tom does this qualify as a mind app do you think oh yeah sure very interesting fascinating one um of using them two or more drugs together or I don't know, whatever else you're using, like reading techniques and the diet and so forth. Yeah. Well, this would be one of the sort of ways of combining different mind apps and to produce a new mind-body state. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we, uh, we've been training mainly with uh, breath work, uh, cannabis, ketamine, peyote, uh, you know, all in intentional settings, kind of training, getting ready for this. Um, so, yeah, a lot of mind apps going on for sure. I like the idea. Well, well, be, I'll be sure to keep you in the loop on this, Thomas, as it uh, as it unfolds, because uh, I think this this you know it, it's over a multi year project, and we've done three podcasts on this already with the the, the principles involved, and uh, I think it's a really fascinating experiment. And uh, of course, nobody knows where it's going to go and what it's going to do, but uh, the fact that uh, you know we need to push forward into this area. And uh, fortunately, there's some people who are now doing it not like we did in the, or you did in the 60s. I wasn't. <laughs> not the reckless stuff. Uh, but, uh, you know, some really serious scientific work. 
but they're combining like you wanted the philosophy and, and art and things like that as well. So you had a couple of broadcasts on this. I'll have to see if I can find yeah, it. I'll, I'll send you the links on it. We've had uh, Rick Strassman and the other two mentioned uh, people that Kevin mentioned uh, that have put this program together. And uh, I think they're in like their, their, their second or third year now. And, you know, it's a really serious uh, project. They're going very slowly. They're not, uh, they don't want to take, uh, you know, unnecessary risks. They don't want anybody uh, uh, having problems like Rick had in his first part of the experiment. And, uh, Kevin, I, I thank you. I, I hate to, I always hate to ask Kevin to talk because I know he's got to pay attention to the road. He's driving right now. <laughs> one, one night, Tom, he, uh, we ended the salon a little early and like uh, 30 seconds later, a tornado crossed right behind him on the road is when oh they're having God. those big tornadoes yeah. in Ohio. So <laughs> wow. living in Illinois, you know what that's like. <laughs> oh yeah. Wow. So, so Tom, you, you, uh, as, as I understand it, you're talking about, mind apps as new instruments and mind body states as like new places to go. Uh, yeah. Do you want to elaborate on that a bit? Well, but, well, but you use mind, uh, mind apps um, singly or possibly together to produce different mind body states. Now the, now once the state is produced, you can look at all the possible things that we can do with our minds and ask how, how do they operate in this state? For example, like, memory or um, physical um, um, production. And you can look at all the things we do and say, how does that vary from mind-body state to mind-body state? So there may be different types of memory, different types of creativity, different types of, of perception in each state. And um, this is a way of actually building a fuller model of the mind. So actually, it's impossible to build a few full model of the mind because these new apps are being invented and being imported. There's a lot of import ayahuasca, you know, the prime example of that, um, all the time. So the, the, there's this great international trade of apps, um, mind apps, I'd call them, as just as they're for cars and food and everything else. So we have no idea where this is going to go and what remains to be discovered. Um, everyone's, when I first heard about Ibogaine, I thought, oh, well, you know, some guy's just trying to make some money off, off addicts. Uh, now, you know, it's, it's a really accepted thing that has to be looked at. So there are all these new things coming along. And also, uh, an interesting thing is that we're learning more about the brain, and, and, and at least weekly and maybe almost daily. Um, it's just an amazing amount of information is coming along. And basically, it's all done with the opportunity of um, overcoming a disease or um, some problems. But also... Those are skills then of manipulating our minds and our brains and, they, and they, all the new stuff that's being discovered as treatments can also be developed as mind apps. So there's an enormous area that's going on here. On here. And, and how, how, uh, how do you suggest uh, we, we think about mapping some of these new mind states, uh, cataloging them or, or talking about them uh, with one another? That's, that's an area that to me it really needs a lot of work on it, not to, on to build categories. I think that we probably will categorize them differently according to what we're interested in. Like if we're interested in creativity or the arts, we'll catalog them one way. If we're interested in, let's say, psychotherapy, we can catalog them another way. I developed what I call a central mind-body-state question. And it's how does blank, whatever you're interested in, vary from one mind-body state to another. And basically, this is what's happening now in psychotherapy. It's answering the question, how does psychotherapy vary from mind, from psychedelic mind state to another psychedelic mind state? So that's a, an example of some good practical use that's come out of using that question. But we can put all kinds of things in there. We can even um, put in things like uh, sacredness, beauty, truth, reality. Uh, one of the things I find most fascinating about psychedelics is you know they can amplify your sense of whatever you're interested in like probably everybody listening to this has had the experience of this is real this is really real this is realer than real so reality is something we can do experiments on or sacredness i mean sometimes things will see not at all sacred very very sacred so all beauty is another 
probably everybody listening to this knows you know, beauty can be heightened up or it can be dropped down. So all these things that used to be just general philosophical generalizations and generalized ideas, we can actually do research on now. And this means that we can look at things that, that have been, say, truth, you know, philosophical philosophies, great uh, sort of goal of truth. But the sense of truth can be amplified up and amplified down. The image, image I use for that is a real stat. And we can real stat all these things up and down. And this opens philosophical areas that have been really armchair philosophy and people thinking about them to do some experimental work on them. So I'd like to see experimental philosophy come along. But this applies to all the areas of cognition that cognitive psychology is looking at. And how does that vary from one mind-body state to another state? And are there ways of thinking in other mind-body states that are not in our ordinary state that will be useful? It's not just a matter of describing them, but seeing if we can discover some sort of use for them. It's like discovering you know, a new continent. You explore it, you find out what's there, and then you use whatever's there, you know, to build a city or whatever. So that's, that's what I find very intriguing about this is that it's not just a matter of describing the mind fully, but also being able to use our minds in new ways. Also, some of those things that people think are rare or impossible, I'd say the parapsychological abilities are prime here. Or, you know, sometimes during the summer when the news is kind of slow, there'll be newspaper or articles like 97-pound woman lifts cement truck off baby. Okay, so there are these unusual abilities that are out there. And they may be unusual because they live in other mind-body states, not an ordinary state. And if we go into other states, we may discover abilities that we didn't know that we had or that were just seen as sort of very questionable. But they're questionable because they're not in our ordinary mind-body state. They're in other states. And basically, who knows what we might find. You know, uh, as far as uh, your work with uh, philosophy, art, music, things like that, and, and uh, in these mind mind body states, uh, have you talked with Jim Fadiman at all about the work that they did in Menlo Park? Uh, yes, I know they've done the creative problem solving work. Yeah, yeah. Jim and I presented we present sometimes together at, at maps conferences. You know, it's unfortunate, but uh, they had like 350 people went through that program. And uh, once they made uh, the analog drug law came in, Myron had all of the records destroyed. So all oh. of that research is, is lost, or not all of it, but a lot of it's been lost, which is a shame. Uh, Jim's recent book has some, some of the new research on I mean, right. he discovered right. some of the research. And, the and uh, Explorer's Guide, really top book. You, you know who, and, and we, we've uh, had him in here in the salon talking about that too. I, I'm, he's going to be back here one Monday night. Uh, that psychedelic explorers guide is, is one of the you know five books you need to have in your library. I think absolutely, yeah. But uh, the other the other person who did work with uh, uh, creative work was Oscar Janiger. Uh, you know, back in the '60s, he was the psychiatrist for Cary Grant and uh, oh, yeah. and uh, all of those guys. He had uh, a number of famous artists uh, draw a. Uh, 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 you know, make a drawing of a particular piece of art or a, a paint or a vase or something. I can't remember what it was, but he had them do it before and then when they were on LSD. And these before and during paintings, uh, there's dozens of them, and and they're very valuable. But uh, unfortunately, Oscar's sons uh, have put all of this stuff in storage along with all of his records too. But I think there's a, a wealth of uh, information there about the artistic and creative uh, potential of these medicines that uh, hopefully we can uncover someday. And I expect um, them to be more dramatic and colorful in the ordinary artwork too, you know, like weeks and months later that they'd have more insights into their own work or the sense of texture of the oils on the canvas. And, and you know, that's true with, with uh, it, it, not just with uh, artistic uh, endeavors, but I remember uh, one time Ralph Messner saying how he'd had an ayahuasca experience and he was just so disappointed he didn't get any answers. And like six months later, this big aha moment came. <laughs> you know, these things keep working in your subconscious, as you well know. Yeah. In your yeah. mind body. I should not say subconscious, should I? <laughs> no, I, 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 know. I know what you mean. 
Right. That, that something else I'd like to uh, point out about this book, and, and I, I mistakenly uh, told the people today that it uh, hadn't been published, but it was published in June of this year, right? Right. And, and uh, one of the, the things that I'm going to urge uh, particularly young people and uh, particularly university students to uh, reason to get a copy of it is Appendix A is an outline for a psychedelic course. Could you yeah. tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, well, that, that's my last uh, syllabus of the years that I was teaching it. And, and of course, people would adopt it any number of different ways. But this was a, a course for either 15 or 20 uh, honor students in a seminar. And I basically wanted to introduce them to some of the classics and some of the main ideas in the field and to have them carry these ideas back into whatever their majors were. Because these were majors from all over the university, and from engineering and the arts and, and, and uh, sciences and so forth. So I tried to get them to have insights or questions about their own fields coming out of that. And so I started off with good old Doors of Perception by Aldous Huxley, because he raises all the topics about mind that we really discovered and went through in the course. And then I like Stan Gross' book, um, now called LSD, Doorway to the Numinous, but originally Realms of the Human Unconscious. And then I would, um, I have an, a graphing interpretation of Disney Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And I'd give that to the class and then have them use Stan's view of the mind to dis describe something in their own lives. And that was fascinating. They had all kinds of different things. Of course, a lot of them, because I used a movie, would use a movie or a TV show. But um, some of them use, you know, moving into a new apartment or some other thing going in their life. So this, it helps them understand themselves. Stan's book is very good in helping people understand their why their emotions are somewhere um, much more intense than than they probably should be, uh, because Stan uses this idea that emotions are clumped together in these things called co coaxes. And when you have an emotion fits that coax, you're activating the whole thing, not just your individual event. So, and then we t we have various books at the end of the semester on sort of the social political times of the 60s. So have you had students come back to you, you know, a decade later that are, are now involved in psychedelics and, and thank you for the course? Yeah, not very many. Um, a few, and um, um, actually, I um, have uh, recently had a contact with one I had quite a few years ago, who um, is going to graduate school now and is trying to find a graduate school where he can do work on psychedelics. And fortunately, there are more schools, although they're mostly oriented towards psychotherapy. But what I'm trying to do is to interest people in all these different fields. You can do a Psychedelics as something to study as the history of psychedelics, or you can, you can use psychedelics as a way to get ideas in your field and develop new paradigms in the field. Um, because when you go to different mind-body states, you're using different cognitive processes so you can come up with ideas you couldn't come up before. You know, we're, we're running out of time. I've got one, one last question since you, you mentioned Aldous Huxley, and I'll tell you ahead of time, it's a, it's a loaded question, Tom. Oh. It's one, being a lawyer, you know, I always argue both sides of every issue, and I can argue both sides of this one, but, you know, Aldous Huxley was, was known that he thought psychedelics should be a top-down thing with the intellectuals and artists and political leaders, and, and then Ken Kesey thought it should be the bottom-up thing. Yeah. Uh, and I've, I've, I, I can see the benefits of both. I can argue both. Uh, do you have any uh, feelings one way or another about this? Yeah. I, um, if you look at the progress that has been made since particularly there, there was that first article at Johns Hopkins in 2006, all the progress that's been made has been made within structures that exist now, basically medical schools. And I think that's the way to go. That's not exactly the elite thing, but what it means is that people who are providing psychedelics have a professional background and they know how to handle situations, they know how to screen people, and so forth. And I think that's the way to go. So I wouldn't exactly call that an elite way of doing it, but I think we have to present psychedelics in the way that it doesn't, that it doesn't scare people. And I think that the medical school model is the way to go. Now, what I'm wondering about is what happens when we move out of medicine into literature and philosophy and so forth, psychology. 
but I, I think that's the, that's we have to work at it. And and people get used to things slowly, and cultures don't change overnight. Um, but the the changes have been made, you know, basically since 2006. They've just been enormous. And paper, you know, the New York Times and New Yorker, and there's Michael Pollan's book that was a New York Times bestseller. I think that's the the way to go to get people used to the idea little by little. And I think I agree. Psychedelics are not for everyone. I mean, some people just should not do them, or they should do them only, you know, in a program of a, a good psychotherapy with a psychotherapist who knows how to use them. So, I think that I'm all for making progress as fast as we can, but making it slow enough so it isn't frightening to people, or, or we don't get too many people, you know, freaking out. That that's my concern about Denver and Oakland. Um, I'm afraid that uh, there may be some people there who will do mushrooms who shouldn't be doing them and give the whole area a bad name. Yeah, that, that is a concern we've talked about here too. And, and uh, getting back to, to psychedelics seeping into the culture uh, in technology, for sure, uh, we wouldn't be having this conversation without LSD. The internet was invented and fueled by acid, you know, but you know, I, I have these, uh, my two youngest grandchildren are now 11 and 14 but when they were preschool and their parents were working, my, my wife and I you know, took care of them during the day. And uh, <laughs> I spent literally hundreds of hours watching these uh, preschool cartoons and all. And there, there was one called Booba that I could, it, it, I've never tried to watch it on acid, but I, I'm sure I would not be able to handle it. It was no. a full-on major acid trip. I mean, and these are little three- and four-year-old kids seeing this. It, it's it's uh, seeping into our consciousness. And and I think you hit the nail on the head with, like, the Buddhist middle way is the, the medical model makes it feel a lot safer for everybody. And, uh, you know, I like most everybody here, I had a lot of trepidation before the first time I, I tried any of these things. And, and I have even more trepidation these days. But, uh, you know, I think the more you learn about them, the, the more respect you have for them. And, and uh, the work that you've been doing over all these years, uh, you know, co-founding MAPS and the Council on Spiritual Practices and all of the books you've written and the courses you've done, uh, tells me I can't wait to get you back in the salon here. And, and uh, I, I'm, I'm about two-thirds of the way through your book. I want to finish it and uh, uh, get you back in here and maybe with uh, Jim Fadiman or somebody to talk about some of the uh, uh, oh. more creative aspects of using these substances. Uh, you, it's a very readable book. Oh, um, yeah. yeah I, I, I started it on, I guess, Friday, and uh, I'm doing a lot of other things, but I'm, I'm at least two-thirds or three-quarters of the way through it now. And, yeah. and uh, the reason I, I probably haven't gone faster is because you've given me so many trails to follow. I've gone out, and I'm wearing out Wikipedia following out some of your leads. Uh -huh. So uh, I, I'd heard of things like Council Grove before, but uh, you've added a lot of color to it for me, and I appreciate that. Yeah. So in, in closing, uh, Tom, do you have any words that you'd like to leave us with here and uh, until the next time you return? Well, um, you know, I'd like everybody just to keep on whatever path they're going along and and uh, follow whatever feels right for you, you know, and go that way. Um, I mean, that's, that's about, there are all kinds of good books that are coming out. Oh, there's one on Sid Gottlieb, the guy who ran MK, MK Ultra called The Chief Poisoner. It I just I just downloaded it, yes. It, yeah. it, there, there's a, another book called uh, Terrible Mistake that came out in 2009. Oh, I also know. details of MKUltra in excruciating detail. And oh. Gottlieb is, of course, the central figure in there, too. But uh, anybody interested in the history of uh, psychedelics in the United States and the, the uh, nefarious ways the government has uh, worked on them, uh, definitely should read one or both of those books. <clears throat> yeah, I hope people will, will, whatever their main interest in, will will widen and look at the things that are adjacent to it. Um, because because with psychedelics, you can go practically into What I find most interesting about psychedelics is that I've had to learn so many different kinds of things. You know, and that's that's one of the really fun things with it, with them. Maybe it's psychedelics all the way down. <laughs> yeah. Oh, what's the name of that that cartoon, Bububa? Uh, Booba. It's it's no longer. You can find it on YouTube. B o o b a h. 
I'm going to look for it there. Yeah. Watch okay. it in full, full screen after a few tokes, and you <laughs> and, and you won't need any acid ever again. <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> well, listen, everybody. Thank you again for being here, uh, and until next week, keep the old faith and stay high. <laughs> Thanks. Bye, all. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Well, before I close today, I want to let you know what I think uh, that I figured out about when the first Bicycle Day celebration actually took place. You know, we just heard Tom say that it was in 1983, 84, or 85, something like that. But according to Wikipedia, <laughs> for what that's worth, uh, there it says it took place in 1985. So we just heard Tom say that since the 16th was in the middle of the week, he picked the 19th so that their little party could be held on the weekend. But he also said something else that I think solidifies the 1985 as being the year. If you recall, Tom said that he wanted the party to be held on the weekend. But April 19th in 1985 was on a Friday. It wasn't until 1986 that it landed on a Saturday. But Tom said one other thing that uh, was in kind of an offhand way about the 19th maybe was uh, only close to the weekend. That, I think, would make it 1985. Well, I'm sure that eventually somebody who was at that very first Bicycle Day celebration that was held in DeKalb, Illinois, of all places, well, somebody's going to hear this podcast and let us know for sure what year it was first held. But until then, I'm putting my money on 1985. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>